Gracias a la vida. Thanks to life, which has given us so much. It gave me sound in the alphabet. With these words, I think and declare, Mother, friend, brother, and light shining down on us, sings the powerful voice of Mercedes Sosa and the iconic voice of Joan Baez. We here at Solutions of Balance, along with our guest today, Dr. Linda Green, believe that if we all demonstrate an appreciation for life and view others, regardless of their geographic origins, as mother, friend, brother, the world becomes a more peaceful place. Welcome to Solutions to Violence. We're so pleased you could join us today. I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson. We are your hosts for Solutions to Violence. We are a program and sponsored by Forward Radio. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP LP 106.5 FM. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Louisville Fellowship for Reconciliation. Solutions to Violence is a program sponsored by Forward Radio, following as part of our station's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed on our program are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do that by emailing us at solutions2violence1a at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. So today's Solutions to Violence broadcast concerns a three-year-long ethnographic study of the Mayans and the people of Guatemala. The study was conducted by our guest today, the anthropologist Linda Green. The struggle of the Guatemalan people under numerous dictators was often supported by the United States Central American policy, and it is a compelling story. Today's program is the second in a three-part series on Guatemala. In addition to composing fear as a way of life, Mayan widows in rural Guatemala, Linda Green has composed, quote, betwixt and between, young Kip, combat soldiers, and the burden of war published in Anthropology Anno. Also, The Notables, Neoliberalism, Violence and Migration, published in Medical Anthropology. Also, White Plague, Thinking Through the Tuberculosis Epidemic in Wayne Lim, along with Confronting Capital, Essays in Honor of Gavin Smith, as well as A Wink and a Nod, Notes from the Arizona Borderlands, published in Dialectical Anthropology. She is currently a social, cultural, and medical anthropologist at the University of Arizona. Dr. Linda Green, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Thank you very much, Jim and Jamie for asking me to be here. I really appreciate this. I was in Guatemala from 1988 to 1991. Well, Dr. Green, we're glad to have you join us today. Why should people in Tucson, Arizona, or that matter, Louisville, Kentucky, care about what's happening in Guatemala? It's a country thousand miles away from the United States and the southern border. Indeed. But I think there are two compelling reasons to do so. One is uh, the U.S. footprint has been all over Guatemala, at least visibly, since the early 1950s and before. And secondly, because of that, and from 1954 to the present, we have a big debt to the Guatemalan people. We owe them. So I think it behooves us to figure out what's going on there, why it's been the case, and what is our responsibility as the U.S. in helping to create the circumstances, which now for many, many Guatemalans, particularly indigenous peoples, Mayan people, it's unlivable. And so we see large numbers of people, not only from Guatemala, but El Salvador, Honduras, increasingly from Nicaragua, coming up to our southern border. It's not by coincidence. So that our listeners have a general idea of the struggle within the Guatemalan people, would you briefly explain the history from the time of Central America was conquered by Cortes and the time when General Federico Ponce gave up his power to military commanders? That was in October 1933, I believe. And could you give us a, a sense of the history? Sure. Many Guatemalans also do a 500-year-plus history 
history when they talk about what's happened for the people in Guatemala. And I think one thing to point out off the top is that since the time of the arrival of Pedro Alvarado in Guatemala in 1524, I believe, Guatemalan people, the Mayan people of Guatemala, have lived under minority rule. And that is true today as well, because the Mayan people have continued to hold majority status since conquest to the present and never relinquished it. So across those centuries, Mayan people have lived in enduring and multiple forms of exploitation, oppression, racism, and intermediately direct repression, all the while because they have been the cheap labor source, the font of generating revenues for other people, for the first for the Spanish conquistadores, later for the criollos, for the missionaries, and now for the Guatemalan elite. But each time, they are the ones who generate the money, the capital for an, a, a small elite, and they are the exploited workforce. So Linda Green, you spent a couple of years in Zaycos, Guatemala, fictitious name, real it, village, from 1988 to 1991. Your visit came in the middle of the Guatemalan Civil War, a civil war that was started by a military coup that removed the legally elected, democratically elected Jacob Arbenz from office and took the lives of some 200,000 Guatemalan citizens. Lives murdered and, quote, disappeared, end quote, as documented by research conducted by the Historical Clarification Commission, an agency of the United Nations. You interviewed hundreds of Guatemalan citizens, mostly Mayan women. Tell us about the conditions endured by the citizens of Jekash, Guatemala. Thank you. Um, it's Shekash, and it's a fictitious name. I don't use the real name of the village. Uh, I didn't at the time when I wrote the book, and I, I wouldn't again even now. Uh, the Civil War, the counterinsurgency war, I would call it rather than a civil war, was winding down. By the time I got to the region in which I worked, the massacres had happened some five or seven years earlier, depending. There had been massacres and disappearances, disappearances even in the 1970s. Now, this, the war didn't start because of a military coup of Jacobo Arbenz, because that was who was overthrown in 1954. This iteration uh, and of the counterinsurgency war really doesn't start until the 1970s in the highlands, the western highlands of Guatemala, where the Mayan, the vast majority of the Mayan people live. So, although there had been earlier iterations of a counterinsurgency war in the 1960s in the eastern half of Guatemala, this was a bit distinct. The guerrilla movements that rose up out of that period moved over to the highlands, started to do some organizing. But what, what was also going on at the same time was lots of community organizing, both by some non-governmental organizations and more particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Catholic Church through its program of liberation theology, Christian-based communities. So there's a lot of things happening in the, the countryside during this period. And it's then when the military moves in, the Guatemalan military moves in and massacres large numbers of people. The vast majority of the people who are murdered during this period, 80% of them were unarmed Mayan civilians. They were not combatants. 
and the vast amount of the people who were murdered over the period from the 1970s until the signing of the peace accord in 1996 were Mayan people. In a four-year period, 1980 to 1984, 80% of the people who were murdered were murdered during that period. So it's a huge, it's a huge, huge blow to Mayan people and to villages. And so when I arrived to do my field work, the violence was more or less over, although where I worked, the countryside was still very militarized, but the ostensible violence had already taken place. And I came to try to understand how it was that Mayan women, women who were widows, were able to survive in the aftermath of these tragedies in which they, they were living. So that it wasn't during the war, it really was quite at the very end of it, but still its legacies, the brutal legacies of that earlier time was, were much felt on a day-to-day -day basis. And as, I, as you indicated, the, um, the book I wrote about this, uh, I called Fear is a Way of Life, and that was not by coincidence. It very much described how it felt at the time to be living in Guatemala. Well, in the days under the rule of Benico Cerezo, the Guatemalan military occupied the streets of just about every town and village. They were certainly present in the city of Chacash, and citizens still were being, as they say, disappeared. You were there in 1988 to 91. Tell us what it was like to walk the streets of Chacash during that time. Chacash well, is a um, compilation of three different municipalities and then with the outlying villages. So a municipality in Guatemala is, the landscape is the old conquistador configuration that they made these villages. So the, the church, the Catholic church is central and then a park in front of that. And then around there, there'll be some shops and other things going on. And then there was a larger market town, uh, two larger market towns that become very active uh, on the day in which the municipal market takes place. People come in from all the different villages. So you have the central plaza, the, the church and the municipal buildings. And then out from that in kind of concentric circles, you have smaller villages where people have houses right around their property where they grow their corn. So that what's called their milpas. So, and it, so it's very rural and it's out in the mountains, somewhere around 7,000 feet in the area where I worked. What was it like to live there? Well, it was, uh, again, this low level fear because it wasn't like the military fully occupied the towns all the time. What was more difficult about it is they came and went. And you didn't know when they were coming and you didn't know when they were going. So sometimes I'd get up in the morning and walk into the center of town to go to the panaderia, to go to the bakery. And on every corner, there would be a soldier with his um, automatic weapon. And the next day, they'd be gone. Or you go to the market town and you'd come in to the town and there would be tanks around and soldiers up on the top of the building, again, with their automatic weapons. Some market stays, they weren't there. So it was that come and go unpredictability that was so destabilizing, I think, for all of us. 
But most of the time you tried to get around and not be too afraid. You just kind of took a deep breath and, and kept going. To answer your question, were people still being disappeared? Oh, absolutely. And they were picking people up, but it was more a one-on-one. -on -one. It wasn't uh, the large scale massacres that they had been doing the five to seven years earlier at this time in Chicago what was happening was this kind of insecurity of never knowing what's going to happen next. And um, that was very wearing. That took a lot of energy for all of us to keep going because uh, you didn't know what was happening next. But indeed they did. And in fact, in 1998, they picked up a Catholic nun uh, not too far from where I was doing my field work, Sister Diana Ortiz, and the Guatemalan military tortured her. And it was only because some guy who we now know was a US employee came to the torture site and rescued her that she was actually able to survive. It's a, she, there's a, it's a wonderful, she's written a wonderful book about it. It's uh, wonderful in the sense that it's, it's complete and compelling, uh, not wonderful in, in its content. So th this was definitely going on. And of course, when, when I remember finding out that she, they had picked up a, um, a US citizen and they had disappeared her, of course, um, I became more frightened than ever because I had kind of thought for a while that maybe I could get a free pass. <laughs> but th that, that is the, the beauty, and I'm saying that in quotes, of how the counterinsurgency worked is the destabilizing effect. You didn't know who you could trust. You didn't know if you went out, if you were coming back that day. And that, I just want to make this reference. I hope it's okay. But that very much parallels what happens for many undocumented people in this country today. Because when they leave home in the morning, they might not know whether or not ICE is going to pick them up and disappear them through deportation. And yeah. many of these are the same people. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Linda, you, you talk with many citizens, mostly women. One of the most striking revelations had to do with photos of sons dressed in Guatemalan military uniforms, hanging on the walls of the huts of the mothers you interviewed. A dynamic dichotomy, to say the least. Tell us about that. Well, that goes back to a very clever strategy by the Guatemalan military. So the military command is made up of non-Indigenous peoples, or what, what they're called in Guatemala as Ladinos. But the foot soldiers yeah. were the forced recruits for the, for the army itself. And they were the ones that actually committed the massacres on the ground. Hmm. So they used young forced recruits, the vast majority of them Mayan Indian people, to kill their own. And again, in another clever round, uh, because there are 22 indigenous languages in Guatemala, they made sure that those foot soldiers who were doing the killing in one place were not from that place and were not able to speak the indigenous language. Because from the most part, the Guatemalan high command does not know indigenous languages. And therefore, the troops would be able to actually warn people in another language if they could. But anyway, you know, whether forced or I imagine in some cases voluntary, because life is contradictory like that. The foot soldiers were the indigenous young men uh, doing the killing. And yeah, yes, you're right. It's absolutely a huge contradiction to have your son 
be in the military, and then perhaps that very same military, another unit, of course, but that very same military perhaps killed your husband and might have killed him simply because somebody else in the town fingered him. And I think, as I say in the book, what was so hard for me to come to terms with is I didn't know how to talk about that, uh, that Indigenous people were killing their own. Because when I first went to Guatemala, I went with the very naive assumption, the Guatemalan military bad and the Mayan people good. So it was a black and white binary. And as we know, those never explain very much. They don't really capture the complicity and the contradictions of a reality. So uh, the, what I could do then is really try to understand how divisions happened in communities much prior to this, and then how the military could take advantage of the kinds of differentiation going on within communities. Much of that had to do with land and resources. Yeah. The Historical Clarification Commission, commonly known as the Truth Commission, explained that it was not the Unidad Revolutionary on National Guatemala Tactica, the URNG, the left-wing guerrilla soldiers that opposed Guatemalan dictators like Mott, Rael's Mott that was responsible for most of the killings that occurred during the Guatemalan Civil War. The Truth Commission explains that 93% of the disappearances and killings that happened during the Guatemalan Civil War occurred at the hands of the Guatemalan military. Is that what you witnessed? Well, I didn't witness it because I wasn't there in the area when the the violence was happening per se, but that's what everyone says. The, the Truth Commission absolutely did capture, as well as the commission that was set up by the Catholic Church Human Rights Office. Pretty much everybody says it was the military who killed the people. And yes, definitely there were casualties and there were killings by the URNG. That was without doubt, but a very small percentage in comparison to who carried out the massacres, disappearances and killings of people during the war. Dr. Green, land ownership was critically important to Guatemalans, as it is to many people, but especially the Mayans. Why is that? Well, a number of reasons, but to start culturally, since I'm an anthropologist, for Mayan people, land, the land on which they can grow their corn, is, is sacred. Their myth, their creation myth, is that they are the people of corn, yeah. and that land is incredibly important. Where you do put your milpa, that's what it's called, where you put your corn fields and grow corn and beans and, and herbs in those, in those fields, is also a sacred place. Because until very recently, when you go out to plant your corn, you plant by also um, having a ceremony, by praying to the spirits uh, for a good harvest, yes. uh, by making, and also, as several older men explained to me, this is where the spirits of your ancestors reside. So it's, it's a very important space that land that's passed on generation to generation to generation. So that's the cultural understanding of it. The economic understanding of it is, is that 2% of the population, that is 2% mostly non-Indigenous people, own 80% of the land, the arable land for farming in Guatemala. It's one of the most unequal land distribution places in all of Latin America. So what happens is you have a family, 
you have five acres of land and you have five sons. Well, when those sons grow up, you divide the land and they'll each get an acre. No land reform happens. And those sons have kids and they have sons because it's passed down through the uh, father's line, patrilineal. They have sons and they give, he divides up that one acre and he has three kids. So they all get a third of an acre. So you see what's happening. More and more and more concentration of land that is unable to really support people to live throughout the year. So they become more and more squeezed. So those two cultural and economic issues, and then it became a political issue, both in the 19, during uh, the Arbenz period, where he actually started some agrarian reform. And then it becomes one of the major factors throughout the counterinsurgency war is that fight over land and who has a right to the land. Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. And so many of the indigenous populations lost their land to foreign investors like United Fruit. And it's a U.S. corporation. And why was this such a blow then to Guatemalans that they were losing their land to corporations outside the country? First of all, the United Fruit, now we're talking the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And uh, that land was land down on the south coast, the vast majority of the Mayan people lived up in, live up in the Western Highlands, a bit of a trek away. United Fruit and other corporations who coffee, sugar, cotton, fruit, those all became uh, much more important over from the 40s through the 70s, took place not on Mayan indigenous lands. What the, who they were looking for in terms of the Mayas was a workforce a part-time workforce. So they bring them down to the coast to do either the planting or the harvesting, and then the Maya could go back home to those villages and subsist. What starts happening in the 1970s and 80s as a neoliberal economic policy starts taking over globally is the move from the traditional export crops to non-traditional export crops. And in there, they want to do that growing in the highlands. And they're more than happy to have people convert their milpas from the corn and beans of subsistence to broccoli and snow peas for export. And that's happening during the counterinsurgency war. And people have no other options. They can't go down to the coast because the war is going on. So that gets cut off to them. And then they have this, in in quotes, opportunity to diversify their land. This was a USAID project heavily promoted by the international development agencies, but in Central America, very much supported by the US Agency for International Development, USAID. And it's in these kinds of uh, arrangements that people start actually losing those milpa lands because when they decided to grow broccoli or snow peas or whatever, you yourself, the owner of that land, were responsible for the the seeds, the fertilizer, the pesticides, whatever you needed to grow that crop. So rather than using that land for your, your food subsistence, you're using it to grow these crops. You're going to take it down the road to the guy, the middleman, who's going to buy that and you'll get some cash and that'll help get you out of debt for the fertilizer, etc. The problem is 
if the rain doesn't happen when it's supposed to happen, or there's some other catastrophe, maybe it turned too cold, the broccoli didn't come out so good, or you get it down to the middleman you're going to sell to, and it's too heavily laden with pesticides, and it won't pass inspection into the United States. So now you have a whole thing of broccoli that you have nothing to do with, because at that point, nobody in the highlands is using broccoli. You just see broccoli just thrown onto the side of the road because it was useless to them. People didn't eat broccoli, wasn't part of their, their diet. So, but you lost, you lost your investment in that harvest. That keeps happening or it happens over time. All of a sudden you're without your land. So now you've become landless. Now, what are you gonna do? And I just to add, 75% of the active workforce in Guatemala works in the informal economy. So it isn't like you're gonna go get a job somewhere where you're gonna get health benefits and a pension and holidays and good pay. No, you're in the street selling fruit, chiclets, trying to hustle a tourist, whatever you can do to try to get a little bit of cash. So you can go to the market and buy the corn because you don't have land anymore to grow your corn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the next step is to think about migrating. Yeah, logical step. Sure. So the anchorization, especially during the, the Eisenhower administration here in the States, was that communism was rampant in Guatemala, especially under the Arbenes government. But Linda Green, you stated, quote, the structural violence endured by the Mayans had little to do with the communist threat, but was concerned with a deeply rooted, historically based inequity and impunity that infuses Guatemalan society, expressed through class, ethnicity, and gender divisions, and experienced by Mayans as virulent racism, end quote. But it wasn't just inequity built into the structure of the Guatemalan society that resulted in political repression. Beginning in 1887, the United Fruit Company grew into the largest company in Guatemala, and by the beginning of the 20th century, had established an efficacious relationship with the dictators that ruled Guatemala. That connection lasted up until the time Juan Aravalo was voted into office in 1945. Aravalo was the first democratically elected president in Guatemala. The research conducted by Paul Dorso in his book, Doing Business with Dictators, A Political History of the United Fruit in Guatemala, as well as Stephen Schlesinger and Stephen Kinzer Bitterfruit, The Story of the American Coup in Guatemala, and others demonstrate that the American company was complicit in the suppression and marginalization of the Guatemalan Mayan and Ladino population. United Fruit was directed by an all-white male administration. Is the United Fruit Company complicit? Is that a fair statement? No, absolutely. But I think I think there are a couple factors going on at the same time that converge during this period. Certainly United Fruit, what was happening with that, or my understanding is, is that the United Fruit had a lot of fallow lands. They weren't actually, that weren't actually in production. And it was Arbenz who started with some agrarian reform. And so one of the things he did is he started expropriating the fallow lands of international corporations that weren't in play. And what he did was he offered United Fruit the money that they had claimed every year that they earned so they could pay their taxes. So they claimed their property, their landed property was valued at, I don't know, X number of dollars. And they went to file their taxes with the Guatemalan government. So the Guatemalan government used that 
as it, the basis of what they were going to pay for the land as they took it back because they wanted to redistribute it. You can imagine United Fruit wasn't really excited about that. And you're right, this was during the Eisenhower years. And John Foster Dulles, his brother, uh, John Foster Dulles and his brother, Alan, Alan Dulles, Dulles, brothers were associated. In fact, I think Alan was on the board of directors of United Fruit. And John yeah. was head of the CIA. Somebody was head of the CIA. Somebody was head of... John was the director of the CIA. John was a sta uh, Secretary of State under Eisenhower on the yeah. board of directors Both. of the United Fruit Company. Yeah. So you can see the complicity there. They didn't like what uh, Arbenz was doing, and they certainly didn't like agrarian reform. Now, why wouldn't they like agrarian reform in Guatemala? It seemed, it seemed like a good thing for many people. But of course, that sets a terrible precedent across Central America and across Latin America and Mexico that, you know, sovereign nations actually might start calling the shots about how their countries are run. And again, these are, you know, these are military dictators uh, uh, prior to this, but now we've got somebody in place, uh, Arbenz, Arelvelo started, and then Arbenz really picked up the speed on this to try to make some kind of equity in the way that land was distributed so people could do better. There's another thing going on. You mentioned the communists. Indeed, Arbenz did appoint uh, people to his cabinet who were members of the Communist Party, who were part of the, the workers' unions. But uh, although this was the time of great ferment in the U.S., the, the, the Red Scare, of course, most of the world doesn't treat communism in the same apoplectic way that the U.S. and U.S. citizens do, either then or now, which is really quite interesting. When you say communism here and everyone is really upset, say it in Europe and it's like, yeah, so what? Yeah. <laughs> something, to, something to actually just think about. So that's going on. He does have communists and union members in his cabinet. Okay, so that just plays into the discourse in the United States, of course. And what that does is to raise levels of fear. So another way to start justifying intervention in a country that is a sovereign nation. And then the third thing that's going on that you didn't mention that I think is extremely important, and it um, comes out of work by Jim Handy, who's a Canadian historian who works in Guatemala and wrote a wonderful book, I think, called The Revolution in the Countryside uh, about this, this era. And Jim makes the important point that what's going on in the countryside is local organizing among Mayan people and local non-Indigenous people. And they're making common cause and they're finding ways to actually have a voice in a democracy. And Arbenz has enfranchised Indigenous men, not Indigenous women, but Indigenous men, so now they're going to have at least the right to vote. These people are really starting to make collective ideas and policies of what they want at the local level. That's always extremely threatening to the status quo when local people start organizing. And I, I argue in my book that I think even though the, you know, the Guatemalan military were ostensibly and very much so conducting a war against the armed 
a guerrilla movement, no doubt about it. And many of those foot soldiers were also Mayan people. But one of their real targets was the local organizing taking place again in the 70s. So you have local organizing happening in the late 40s and 50s, Mayan people coming together saying they have a true voice in their own lives and the directions of their own lives. You see it again in the 70s. What is the way that is met with? Brutal violence and repression and backed, I must say, we wanna give credit where credit's due to the US policies and the military. We train, fund, and supply the Guatemalan military to carry out the violence against its own citizens. But I think those three coming together, United Fruit and the expropriation of land, communist threat, and the collective organizing at the local level. Why is this also important to the U.S.? Because it sets a very bad precedent for the rest of Central America, particularly what's happening in El Salvador at the time and in Honduras. Right? So you, now you're starting to see perhaps an isthmus of people starting to rise up, right? You're seeing some foment around issues that are happening in Mexico, in Cuba. So all over Latin America, you're starting to see the rise of people mobilizing against the system in which they're living. And the U.S. can't have that. Remember in the 1980s, Reagan saying that, you know, the Sandinistas are going to come across the border to Texas, Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right, so that fear mongering because we can't have examples. Same thing why we had to have the boot on the neck of the Cuban people for the last 60 odd years because that's a terrible example of fairness and equality. And these are, you know, clearly uh, and obviously huge conflicts in the, in the region. And but what, what solutions could you uh, suggest would 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 be a part of resolving these, this violence against the people in Guatemala. Would it be revolution? I mean, that's been something that's tried. I'm not big on solutions, but I'll I'll give it a try. Uh, no, I think the armed revolution right now. That's 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 not been. Uh, I think we have examples that's not been sustainable. Terribly effective. Yeah. So what do we do? First, I think we need to um, withdraw the U.S. <laughs> from all of the region, which would be good, although we owe them a debt, we can give them some money. Um, but, you know, that, is, that would be important. I think the other thing would be, you know, this is really pie in the sky, but getting rid of capitalism, because that's, you know, really the biggest problem of all, the ways in which uh, the economics, the global economic system is organized, uh, does not seem to enfranchise the vast majority of people. The other thing is, is in places like Guatemala, honoring indigenous sovereignty, mm -hmm. yeah. honoring that the lands belong to indigenous peoples and allow indigenous peoples to start setting the stage for their own future. And then the other thing that, uh, that we never talk about publicly, but I think absolutely needs to be included, and I see absolutely no solution to this, is the overwhelming control of the international trafficking organizations in the region. And until that can stop, I don't see what really is gonna change. 80% of the cocaine that comes into the United States flows through Guatemala. That's not by coincidence. That's not without the assent 
of the people in power in Guatemala. You don't get to move that kind of product through a country if you don't have the agreement of the people who are in charge. So that'd be step one. That'd be step one. I don't know how you do that, though. Yeah. I, I, I don't have a clue on that one. But it is a major factor all over Latin America, actually all over the world now. And these trafficking organizations have become so sophisticated, they're actually invested in capitalist commodities. They're not all illegal commodities like drugs or trafficking of women and children. They're also invested in avocados and oil and you name it. Okay, well, you explained that the Mayan women are able to hold their communities and their, and their cultures together in, in the face of physical and structural and political violence that aimed at their culture. Help us understand how the Mayan women accomplished that. It's not like a pretty impossible task. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in the past tense, and I wouldn't say that that was everybody, but I, my experience of living with people in the communities is that there's still a sense of a collective responsibility to each other. Perhaps that shrunk somewhat now more into the larger extended family, which would, it used to be because of other kinds of community organization extending more outward. But even, you know, vis-a-vis membership in churches and all, people really still care for one another. In Guatemalan villages, even though people are malnourished, no one went without food. If you didn't have any food, people would bring you over a couple tortillas, some salt, maybe a little bit of coffee, something that would allow you to keep going. So that, and that sense of dignity, that sense of doing what's right in the face of even when it's really difficult, to stand up and do what's right. And that I think really gives you the sense of that you matter, you count for something. And I think if anything, I took away from the time I've spent in Guatemala and the first time I went was in 1986 and I still go, although I haven't been this year, of course, is that is that sense of dignity of who they are. And you again, you see that here as people cross the border. I do some um, volunteer work in a migrant shelter here and uh, that sense of helping each other. And it's... Um, quite distinct in contrast to the ways in which so many people in the United States treat each other. And I don't mean to glorify the Mayan people and and put them on a pedestal. There's all kinds of people inside that. But my experience in the rural areas with people, that sense of dignity allows them to to have a, a generosity, even in the face of having nothing, they still take care of other people. Military dictators claimed their use of military force against the domestic population was about tracking down guerrilla soldiers, the UNRG. But the UNRG guerrilla forces had supported democratic reform. So you claim that the military acting on orders from dictators like Reyes Mott, for example, it was trying to destroy the Mayan culture. Why would they do that? What's, what's your evidence to, to support that idea? Well, to try to support, I guess, genocide is my evidence. You kill off the vast majority. You kill off so many people, and the vast majority of them are Mayan Indians who are unarmed. So that. But why did they want to destroy the Mayan Indians? And that has to do with land claims. You know, this is about land and resources. And you know, they are the majority of the population. There are very few countries now left in the world that live under minority rule. At some point, will this ever come up and be addressed? Right. 
The vast majority of people in Guatemala are indigenous peoples. They live under minority rule and they live under enormously unfair, inequitable, exploitable, repressive conditions and have. And that's still the case today. It changes, it has new forms, but its outcome is always the same. Okay. I want to know a little bit about your book, The Fear as a Way of Life, Mayan Widows in, in Rural Guatemala. It's an ethnographic study. It's a scientific description of the peoples and the customs and the habits and, and mutual differences of the people there. What do you hope to, what did you hope to learn about the Mayan culture? And why was that insight so important to you? Well, I went to Guatemala to specifically study Mayan widows from the counterinsurgency war. I wanted to see how women survived under such circumstances. What, are the, what did they mobilize to keep going? And in the communities that I, I worked in, and these are small, you know, rural communities, on average, 25% of the households in those communities were now headed by women alone, and that was a result of the counterinsurgency war. So in these communities, it was semi-subsistence production. The men go out and work the fields, grow the corn, etc., harvest it, bring it back. The women's job is to convert that harvest into usable products, food, food for the animals. They used the corn stalks in different ways for bandages. So there were all kinds of, the whole, the milk was a way of life. Yeah. So now the men in your family are gone. And, and many of the women I worked with, it wasn't just their husbands, it was their sons, it was their uncles, it was their cousins, it was their father. So tons of men are now gone. There's just a lot of women left in the community. There's no prohibition about women working the mill, but it's not a sacred space, but it's much harder for women. And they'd often have to try to scrape together some money to, buy, to um, hire uh, most of those day laborers to come help them in the, the more arduous part of the growing cycle. So I wanted to understand how did women make sense of this? What did they do in the practical ways? How did it work out in their material lives? And why did I want to know about this? I wanted to work in Guatemala with women because I had the sense of, from the few times I had visited prior to this that, that the, there was great strength and spirit with these women in spite of what they had suffered, that the ways in which they saw their survival was tied up with each other and each other's well-being and that sense of community. And that's very much what I wanted to understand. Okay, so Iris Young's book, Justice and the Politics of Difference, describes the five faces, quote, the five faces of oppression, end quote, exploitation, marginalization, powerlessness, cultural imperialism, in random acts of violence. These five phases of oppression were all occurring as a result of the Guatemalan Civil War and the political repression handed out by dictatorial political leaders. You describe the psychology and spiritual effects endured by the Guatemalan people as humiliation and fear and the denial of dignity. You witnessed this fear and humiliation on the faces of Guatemalan women. So how are these women able to carry on despite the fact that they were struggling with dictatorship and oppression. Well, I, as, I, um, as I said, you know, that it, 
it was a horrible set of circumstances, that fear and uncertainty in life, but also there was a sense of together. And people have great sense of humor. We used to laugh a lot. And also, again, I want to index that dignity about it wasn't just about taking care of me. It was how is everyone else doing around me? So it's not just that individual, it's much more that sense of collective. And when you live by that, you have a different source of strength than you do when it's only just about how am I, how am I doing, am I getting enough, or my own complaints. So still, they hadn't killed off that sense of who we are as Indigenous peoples, that sense of dignity, and that sense of what do we owe each other? Okay. Dr. Green, the, the Mayans in uh, rural Guatemala chose to hold on to their culture, as many indigenous people have tried uh, in North America, other American locations. They refused to learn Spanish and, and adopt the customs of, of our habits of the dominant Ladino culture. You explain that determination to hold on to the Mayan culture is in the face of psychological, physical, structural violence, may have preserved the Mayan culture. Still, the refusal to adopt the Ladino language, customs, and culture explains, at least in part, why the Mayan population continues to languish in dire poverty. For the Mayans, what is the answer? Is it a Hegelian dialectic resolution? Okay, well, I, I would uh, kind of restate it. They don't refuse to adopt, adopt the Ladino language, which is Spanish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the, the language of the conquistadores. They don't refuse it. And lots of people have had the opportunity and learned Spanish, and the kids that get to go to school actually learn Spanish too. What they've refused to do is lose their Mayan language. Yeah. yeah. So it isn't that yeah. they, they refuse uh, Spanish, they uh-huh. just refuse to give up in the place where I work, Pachiquel. And so it's still passed on. And even some kids don't learn it because of different kinds of circumstances. But what we're finding now, even in the U.S., where there are pockets of indigenous peoples living together, and not surprisingly, language groups live with language groups, like all groups of people who migrate, uh, you come to live where you already know people. Okay. Um, In those places, Young people have even started resurrection the language again. So language is really important to a people's identity, but it's also important to how you view the world. So language expresses a point of view, not just words to describe. And Mayas have tried to hold on to that, and they have held on to that for over 500 years. Now, living a culture also includes some of the the very material things we're talking about, being able to grow the milk, be able to to honor the ancestors and the spirits. Mm -hmm. Some of that has not been so prominently displayed in the last number of years, mostly due to dislocation and dispossession from their lands. But how do people still hang on to their dignity as Mayan people? Again, I would reference back to that sense of dignity, that sense of collective. This is who we are. This is our history. And there's very much a sense of this is our history. And we have survived and we will continue to survive no matter under what circumstances they put us as long as we can do it together. Okay, so Dr. Green, I know you are opposed to the Trump immigration policy and the immigrant situation that exists at the U.S. southern border. So let's move in a different direction. 
Guatemala is the fifth poorest economy in all of Latin America and the Caribbean. Guatemala also has the sixth highest rate of chronic malnutrition in the world and the highest in Latin American countries, as documented by the World Bank in Guatemala. Guatemala's annual homicide rate is still high, according to an article entitled International Homicides Per 100,000 People Country Ranking, published in Index Maduna in 2018-2017. Guatemala reported out of 167 countries, Guatemala ranks 14th in terms of homicides per year. So an article in the New York Times stated January 21st, 2021, entitled Migration Caravan, now in Guatemala. Test regional resolve to control migration. States, quote, as many as 7,000 migrants from Central America are hoping to reach the United States to escape poverty intensified by hurricanes in the pandemic, end quote. Most of those migrants are coming from Honduras and Guatemala. Can you speak to the hardships the Donald Trump policies have caused to those seeking asylum in the United States? Um, yes, of course. Uh, and I've been very much against Trump's policies, of course. They're brutal and cruel beyond measure. However, he wouldn't have been able to do what he did unless so much of this was already in place. So this is Obama, Bush, and Clinton. This isn't just Trump. No. Trump's the acceleration of brutality. No doubt about it. I wouldn't want to take that from him. But I think we have to give credit where credit's due. Mm -hmm. And Obama, remember, was the deporter-in-chief. But yeah. I think we also have to look at why do people come? Because it's unlivable. And two of the things that the 1996 peace accords put in place that actually worked against the Mayan people were neoliberal economic policies and impunity because no mm -hmm. one's ever paid the price yeah. for the violence yeah. in Guatemala. Rios Montt was convicted and then within two weeks, he was, his trial was negated on a technicality. And then before he could get back to trial again, he died, which is always the way. So that impunity, not only for the intellectual authors of the counterinsurgency war, but what happened on the ground in the communities, lots of people with blood on their hands. So what do you see? So neoliberal policies that makes it impossible for people to continue to subsist. And you've given us the just horrible, incredible statistics of the ways in which particularly Mayan people suffer. You know, Guatemala is deemed by the World Bank to be a mid-level developing country. It's not the lowest of the low, but how is it they have the sixth highest rate of chronic malnutrition in the world with all the competitors in the world for those spots? So we have neoliberal policies that we know have been wretched all over the world, including in the United States. That drove some of the migration. And now, of course, the impunity allows the violence to continue in new forms. And that is the trafficking violence, the violence of ex the extractive industries, uh, which the Guatemalan government gives these international co corporations access permits to go excavate on Mayan lands even though they're a signatory of the International Labor Organization's Convention 169 that say that indigenous peoples have the absolute right to say what will take place on their lands. And the Guatemalan government not only gives permits, but actually sends in the military to enforce it, even as indigenous people protest against it. Indigenous people have been killed. Environmental activists in Guatemala, like in, in Honduras, are being killed by the military and extrajudicial forces because they act out and re resist these kinds of developments on their land. And 
all of this violence on top of one, the, the strategy of the Guatemalan military was to use rape and overkill of women as a mechanism of war. And that has now spread further and further and deeper into communities and households. And there's impunity on the ground for all of that. The police are corrupt. They're non-Indigenous, mostly in those communities. Most of them don't even know there's an anti-femicide law in Guatemala, and it's certainly not enforced, and there's no resources behind it for the government. Guatemala, like Honduras and El Salvador, consistently remain in the top five countries in the world, not at war, for femicide and homicide. Why is it the Central American isthmus is such a violent place. I think that has to be accounted for. And the only way I can account for that is to place a lot of blame, not exclusively, but a vast amount of the blame on the US government, both in terms of economics, politics, and the military. Yes. So you've given all the reasons why people immigrating from Guatemala to the United States, those reasons justify that immigration. But some here in the United States fear that people immigrating from Northern Triangle, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala are connected with gangs like MS-13. However, the research conducted by U.S. Border Patrol Acting Chief Carla Provost demonstrates that, quote, of all unaccompanied, unaccompanied minors apprehended at the southwest border since 2011, only 0.02% were either suspected of confirmed to ties to gangs in their country, end quote. This research came from the fact sheet U.S. Immigration and Central American Asylum Seekers Source WOLA 14, March 2018. So the study, study after study, documents asylum seekers immigrating from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala are families escaping the balance and the poverty you already mentioned and talked about in their home country. They're not criminals. Americans also fear immigrants will take their jobs. But research conducted by Daniel Cotes, Dr. Or David Culper, and Heidi Sheroff, August 12, 2014, in their article, quote, Facts About Immigration and U.S. Economy, end quote, states that for native-born workers, immigrants' effect tends to be very small and on average, mostly positive, end quote. So my question, if people immigrating from Guatemala and other Central American countries are not taking our jobs or increasing the American crime rate and are, in fact, contributing to the U.S. economy. Why all the fear of people immigrating from Central America? That's a great question. I think it has a lot to do with a set of discursive practices that the, that the U.S. government, in particular, has um, both instigated and uh, reinforced over and over again. And one of the ways that discourse has taken place is by calling people coming to the U.S. illegals. So we use the term illegal as if that's their identity. And up until quite recently, it wasn't even a crime. It was like getting a parking ticket for crossing the border between ports of entry. But we have criminalized it, absolutely. And we actually have a court system here on the border in which we move migrants through the court system to actually charge them with a felony and then allowing it to reduce to a misdemeanor. And then we put them in detention for a number of days or weeks or months, depending, and then we deport them. And what has what has transpired is this, this has become a very big enterprise. And it makes 
some corporations and some people lots of money. So this yeah. court this court uh, system called Operation Streamline moves people through. It's like a kangaroo court. People come in chained together and they stand in front of the judge. They get to see their lawyers because this is federal court, right? So they stand. It's not immigration court. It's federal court. They're charged with a felony crime. They have a lawyer that they see about five minutes before they go into court. They are to answer, you know, are you culpable? Are you guilty? Et cetera, et cetera. Everybody says guilty. So then get out of there. It's all ridiculous. But it's, it's very costly. And same thing with detention. A lot of those detention centers are private detention centers, $122 a day per person. We pay as taxpayers to keep people in detention who have not committed a crime. So there's a nice capitalist enterprise going on with regard to migration. But why, why this just horrible rendition of they're illegal, they're illegal, they're illegal actually takes its toll people start believing that, yeah. but it's been a very, very effective discourse. They're illegals, they're illegals, they're criminals. And look what we've done to people who may have violated some law or the other. You know, we, we've got them lost, locked up in mass incarceration. And from my perspective, the real criminals are the ones who are in charge and none of them have ever been prosecuted. And again, we have a long line. I'm not talking just about Trump. I'm talking about Obama, Bush, and Clinton. I see them as all war criminals. Really? Okay. So Linda Green, here we are in the United States. There's a new sheriff in town, hopefully. The Joe Biden-Harris administration has a different philosophy in terms of immigration. What kind of immigration policy would you like to see? And what, what should the Biden-Harris administration do to diminish the travesty that exists at the U.S.-Mexican border? Well, first, I want to start by applauding Biden and Harris by finding some kind of pathway for the 11 million plus people who do not have documents in this country currently. I think that's fantastic. And also finding a path to citizenship for the DACA students. Again, I want to apply them for that. And also then starting to let the uh, people under the Bush administration's MPP, where you go wait in Mexico uh, after you've applied for asylum, you sit on the sidewalks for some people now over a year waiting for their asylum uh, case to come up, about to start to let some of those people in so they can at least be adjudicated through the immigration court system. I think, you know, in, in terms of just that, that's fabulous. But those who are going to come through that asylum court system, that's a very flawed system. And so that also needs a major overhaul. The ways in which those cases are adjudicated are travesty. What I don't see yet from the Biden administration is how they're going to handle the large numbers of people who are coming right now. And there are. And they're coming in trucks because the southern border of the United States is not just you. U.S. Mexico. It's also Mexico, Guatemala, and Guatemala, Honduras. And we not only have military and police, we have ICE agents and Border Patrol agents across that region. So there is one place to start: demilitarize the borders and rein in Border Patrol and ICE. Yeah, yeah. So, folks, we're out of time. We want to say thanks to our guest today, Dr. Linda Green. The Solutions to Violence program that features Dr. Linda Green will be repeated Tuesday, February 22nd at 8 a.m. and Wednesday, February 23rd at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. And thanks for listening. For Solutions to Violence, I'm John Johnson.